If you have your Bibles, would you meet me this morning in the book of Jude? The next to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Jude. If you're in Revelation, just turn left until you come to chapter one and then either on just the other side of the page or maybe a page over, you'll find the book of Jude. And last week we introduced this book to you and indicated how Jude or Judah, possibly even Judas, was likely the youngest son of four sons who were born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born to Mary. So Jude was the brother to James, who is the author of the epistle that we also have in our Bibles, and the half-brother to Jesus himself. And Jude came to believe in his brother as the Son of God after his resurrection from the dead. It's a tremendous story, and, and he became a leader in the early church, and tradition says that he was a missionary or a traveling teacher and likely wrote this letter around 65 A.D. It's a brief letter of just a little more than 600 words, but it drops like a bomb. It is an intense letter. We read it all together last Sunday. It is a fiery epistle. It is fiery because some bad actors had infiltrated the church and were corrupting it. And when you first read Jude's letter, he, he may come across angry to you. And I know that there is a righteous indignation. But he is not so much angry as he is passionate because he deeply is concerned about what matters most. And what mattered most to Jude was the faith, the gospel. So don't mistake his passion for his, or his anger for his passion for a deep concern of what matters most. And after a compelling introduction in verses 1 and 2 that we looked at last time, he gets right to the point of his letter in verses 3 and 4, because nothing less than the gospel is at stake, and we pick it up right off in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Here's why. Notice that word for. It, it usually explains the reason. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And this is God's holy and inspired word to us, and all of it is true. And God's people said, Amen. Father, I invite you now to stand in my body and think with my mind and speak through my mouth all the things that you would have us hear and say and feel and do. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray again in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes danger lurks so closely. No one is safe until it's removed. Just ask Zenaida Braganska, who had been telling people that there was a bomb buried under her bed for 43 years. 
The story began in 1941 when the Germans, right at the beginning of World War II, advanced towards the Ukrainian city of Berdyansk. And one night at the very beginning of the war, while sitting near her window, sewing at her machine, she heard a whistling noise and then suddenly was struck unconscious by a blast of wind. And when she eventually came to, she noticed not only that her sewing machine was gone, but there was a a hole in the floor as well as in the ceiling. And Zenaida couldn't convince any of the officials of her city to come and investigate, and, and so she just moved her bed over the hole and lived over it for the next 43 years. And then one day, as some phone cables were being laid in the area, workers noticed something unusual. Demolition experts were called in, and sure enough, they found a 500-pound bomb under her bed. And after evacuating some 2,000 residents from surrounding buildings, they moved Zenaida into a new apartment and the bomb squad detonated the bomb. Danger always works near. And no one is safe until it's removed. Danger always lurks near the church. And sometimes it's right beneath our nose. Such was the case in the 19th and 20th century when liberalism raided the mainline denominations. They turned against the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and denied the supernatural. They denied the virgin birth of Christ. They denied the need for a substitutionary atonement. They denied the absolute reliability of the Bible and then substituted it really for another Jesus, another gospel. There are some remarkable exceptions, but many mainline churches have never recovered. Spiritual dangers have always threatened the church. In the march of, of liberalism, notwithstanding, they're probably stronger in the evangelical church today than at any other time. Jude reminds us that the church is often imperiled by two particular dangers, bad theology and moral compromise. I mean, you can't get any worse than that, right? There is always the danger within the church. There's always the danger in-house of the gradual erosion of orthodoxy and the disgusting odor of immorality. Doctrinal clarity has been on the downgrade, even in the evangelical church, for decades. And scandals, too horrible to describe, are on the increase. We seem to have forgotten that to love Jesus is to obey Jesus. The profile of a Christian in the New Testament is, is not only someone who follows Jesus, but also someone who acts like Jesus. And the Christian life is nothing less than a radical call to holiness, without which the writer of Hebrews says no one will see the Lord. We celebrate the grace of God. God's grace is what moves him to accept the unacceptable. That's you and me. But God's grace 
never leaves us in that same place. What God's grace touches it, he always transforms it. And so God's grace is never an excuse for us to go on sinning. And we know that we will never be delivered from the presence of sin until we are in his presence. But God in this life, beloved, don't ever minimize it, does call us to live a life of holiness. That's for you, that's for me. I think one of the most important things I am to do as your pastor is is to live a life of holiness. Do I fall short every single day? Is it what I strive for? It is my pursuit. God says, be holy as I am holy. And God's grace through Jesus demands this holy life. And the main point of the book of Jude is that how you live is the most reliable indicator of the faith that you profess. So Jude in verses four, three and four brings us really to again the main point of his entire letter and it may be more relevant today than at any other point in our lifetime. The opening phrase of verse three indicates that Jude, as we mentioned last week, wanted to craft a different letter than the one that is sitting before you because As he sat down to write, he became aware of the infiltrators, these pretenders who were coming into the church and were influencing it in all the wrong ways. And they were subverting the faith by what they were teaching and by how they were living. And so it's always, again, those two enemies, isn't it? The doctrinally apostate and the morally deviant. And so... He picks up his pen with a great deal of urgency and writes this letter. It is a letter that, that really Jude, and we can say because the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to write it, God leaves no doubt what he's asking us to do in this letter. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to what? Contend for the faith. That's the entire point of the letter. Hence the title for this series, Contending for the Faith. So let's look at that word contend for just a moment. You'll you'll see the actual Greek word on the screen before you, epigadistai. What English word do you see sort of inside this Greek word? And you really don't need to be a Greek scholar to spot it, do you? Right in the center of it, you see the word agonize. That's it. The word means to wrestle, to strive, to fight. You'll notice the EP in front of it, the epi, really it is a prefix that enhances the word so that it could literally be translated hyper-agonize or uber-agonize. <laughs> the word uber means to go above and beyond, which is exactly what did not happen the last time Lisa and I took an Uber. (laughs) When we were coming back from Florida, we came to the airport late that night, and so we did call an Uber to come pick us up, and there was no room in the car to put our luggage. Um, He'd been smoking something, I'm just saying. (laughs) I I got a whiff for that now. And, uh, And then he just played really loud music the entire time. 
changing the channel constantly, waving back and forth. And I'm thinking, man, all we got to do is make one turn to get home. So Lord, keep us. Lord, save us. And we got home. And uh, we had a little nice exchange after we got out of the car, but it was not above and beyond. This word Uber means to, to Uber agonize. Some translations put it earnestly contend. It's a strong word. It's a word that is drawn, a word picture drawn from, from both the Isthmus games, like the Olympic games, or from the battlefield. It describes an athlete in contention for the crown. It describes the soldier on the battlefield. It is used to describe someone who is putting forth an intense effort either to win or to stay alive. And Jude is telling us we are to put all of our energy into struggling and contending for the faith. And it requires nothing less than our full commitment, the full commitment that a soldier or an athlete might make. We compete, we fight, we agonize, we, we wrestle. And that word agonizes the idea of sweating. We sweat for the gospel because to contend for it means that it will cost you something. So let's not contend. Not, let's not equate contending for the faith like the way you might look for your favorite misplaced pen. You'll look for a few seconds and then give up hope, hoping that it will turn up somewhere someplace. No, to contend means that you've, you give it all you've got all the time, holding nothing back. Contend for the faith. Jude writes that he would have loved nothing better than to share his delight in the faith with us, but there is a problem. We just can't delight in the faith. We must contend for it. And this is something that is required for all believers. This is not just for the green beret type Christian. This is for all of us. You, you have to be involved in contending for the faith. There is no in absentia in this fight. It's all of us, all in. Because if you fail to do this, if I fail to do this, and again, he is speaking to everybody who he, whom he has just said are loved by God and kept for Jesus Christ. That means you and me, if we are in Christ, if you fail in this, you will fail in your duty as a believer. It is a dereliction of duty. It, it is something we must do. It is way easier, I know, to let somebody else do this. It is way easier to, to want to avoid the fray until it blows over or goes away, but we all must always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. That's contending for the faith. I want you to notice as, as Jude gives to us what his primary reason for writing is for us to contend, what we are to con contend for. The faith, he says. And as we mentioned last time, the, the definite article definitely is there. The faith. 
Notice three things. First, that the faith has specific content. Jude's concern here is not for some peripheral or minor issue. The concern is for the main thing, this faith that has been handed down to us. That is the essential things, the primary things, the foundational things. He is referring here to the content of the faith. Even more, we can say he is referring to an existing normative body of truth, a, a series of clearly identifiable beliefs that served as the foundation for the church for which the church now stands as a pillar of. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, right after the church is born on the day of Pentecost, and we're told in, in Acts 2, 42, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's the same idea. This specific content of the faith, there is very, very early on in the Christian church a series of truths to which all Christians would affirm and confirm and live by. Acts 16, verse 4, a couple of verses I would throw out to you. I don't have time to read them. I wish I did this morning, but note them. Acts 16, 4, if you're taking notes. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul refers to a standard of teaching. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says in verses 1 through 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. A body of truth, the specific content of the faith. One of the most haunting verses in the Bible for me is what Jesus said in Luke 18 when speaking of his reappearing, of his return. And he said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find the faith on the earth? Will he find his people still holding forth this to this body of truth? As a church, we have a motto that says in the essentials, unity, and the non-essentials, liberty, and everything else, charity. But that very first line is very important in our motto, in the essentials, unity. The essentials, the core beliefs, this body of truth. And so the faith then is not some nebulous thing that, that you can't pin down. The faith refers to the doctrines of Scripture. The abide is back, and so if you meet in your growth group this week, and I know many of you will, we're going to ask you to identify what this body of truth is in some of its particular points. So the revealed truths about who God is, about the inspiration of Scripture that the Bible is inerrant and reliable and absolutely authoritative about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about sin and redemption, about our sanctification, about what the church is and about the future of the world and the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. What would you put in that list of of those things that are absolutely foundational and essential for which every single day of our life we must contend for? There is, again, a normative body of truth derived from Scripture that we believe together, that we are defined by, that must be taught, that must be defended. And this is what makes the church more than a club. 
because if getting together was simply about coming together around our common interests, our history, our traditions, and enjoying some social time together, then all we are is just a club. But if there is a normative truth that we are always to be contending for, this is what makes the church distinct and unique, and that's why we need a theological content. That's why we need to know our doctrine. That's why sermons, yes, need to be practical, but they also need need to be filled with doctrine so we know what the faith is and we can also smell the stink of the fake stuff. So we must know the content of the faith and then be able to defend it. Secondly, notice not only that it has specific content, but the faith has also been delivered. Jude says here, it was the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Such an important phrase. In other words, we didn't come up with it. We didn't invent it. We didn't create it. It came to us from outside of ourselves. God delivered it to us. He is the author of our faith. We didn't make this up. It has been revealed. And it comes from God and it is given to us. And all of those essential truths that Jude wraps up in that particular phrase, the faith, is delivered to us as a package deal. They all hang together, and it has been given once and for all. Therefore, there is no need for us to update it or to add to it. It has been delivered to the apostles and to the prophets and then entrusted to us once and for all. Paul's second letter to Timothy was written while Paul was was dumped into an ancient cistern northwest of Rome. It was dug out, of, dug out to hold water, but the, the Romans had used it as, as a dungeon. There's the top of it. That would have been the hole in the Mamertine prison where Paul would have been dropped by a rope. Into the bottom of it, it would have been lowered down, and then in the heart of it, the next slide will show us what the Mamertine prison on the inside looked like. And this is where Paul <laughs> spent furlough as a missionary. There's a small ledge in the back corner you'll see there. It's the only ledge in the entire cistern where it's very possible that he wrote his very last letter, 2 Timothy. And in it, he says this in chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 14 of 2 Timothy. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's exactly the same thing that Jude is saying when he says, contend for the faith, guard it, guard the good deposit, continue in the faith already revealed. This again is his last letter. This is Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy. Soon he will lose his head for the hideous crime of knowing Jesus Christ and preaching the gospel. And he's worried at this time, he really is, because as he is about to stand before Nero, no one was standing with him. So many had defected from the faith, and it feels as if the faith was hanging in the balance. And so he says to Timothy, guard it with your life, this good deposit. Continue again in the truth already revealed, because God is not revealing new truths, but the truth. 
So I think what both Jude and the Apostle Paul are saying, and it's all throughout the New Testament, is if it is novel or if it is new, it is not apostolic. It is not God's truth. Now, he may often give us new understanding of something already revealed, but he doesn't reveal new truth. So Jude is asking us, the Apostle Paul is asking us, can I trust you to receive this deposit? Can you keep it? Can you protect it? Can you pass it on to the next generation? Because this message stands. It is not evolving. It is a message that cannot just mean anything. It is a message that has completeness. And that's the third point that I want you to see. The faith is final. The faith is final. It was once and for all delivered to the saints. That means, again, the faith is, is not evolving. It's not elastic. It's not loose. It may seem at times to be outdated. It may feel to many to be unfashionable, but the truth of God is unchanged and unchanging. It's fixed. And so the biggest problem that the people of God face, the greatest danger we face today, are those who think that the faith is in flux. It can be changed at a whim to kind of fit the spirit of the times. Jude gets even more specific, and this is the second major part of our, of our passage. He gets specific about the danger that has occurred. Satan's subtle pattern for certain people, he says, have crept in unnoticed. They have wormed their way in. They have slipped in secretly. It's a sinister phrase. Next time that we're together, we're going to look, Lord willing, at those people more descriptively as, as Jude goes on beginning in verse 5 and following, but I simply want you to notice for now the danger. These people were inside the church. They weren't out there peddling some nonsense. They were people on the inside. Reminding me of what the apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he said, I'm going to be going away. And while I'm away, while I'm gone, Watch out, because wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And here's the thing, wolves in the church do not look like wolves. They look like sheep. And so here is, here is a warning that is so needed on two levels. The first is don't be surprised when it happens. It has been predicted so that when someone comes in and turns out not to be genuine, don't be surprised by this. Disappointed? Yeah. Discouraged? We will be, but not surprised. Because Satan's strategy is, is sinister, but but seldom surprising. This is what he's always done. This is what Jesus warned us about in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. False prophets will come 
Paul warned about it, Peter warned about it, Jude warns about it here. And the kind of people that Jude mentions here, these who secretly slip in, these who worm their way in, well, they were present then, they're present today. We are facing the same challenge. He further tells us in this passage that they are, they are without God. You see that term, ungodly. And it's a favorite term of Jude. I can remember reading this entire letter to you last week. And so as Jude goes on, he, he sort of says it again and again and again and again. They are ungodly. Again, it's a favorite word of his. To be ungodly simply means to be without God. They live as if God is not in their life because God is not in their life. But you don't always see that at first. That's why it's so sinister. So beware of those who pretend to be godly, but who infiltrate the church and then corrupt the church by their teaching and by their lifestyle. And again, there are two ways in which they do that, he tells us. First of all, beware of those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. There is the marvel of God's grace. We celebrated a moment ago when we said it is the grace of God that moves him to accept those of us who are unacceptable. It is the grace of God that moved him to send his son. The grace of God has appeared. And we rejoice in that. We can again never speak about the grace of God enough. But then there are those who take this concept of grace and as Jude says, they pervert it. Some of your translations say they change it, they twist it, they turn it into something that it isn't. And so they, 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 they say things like, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, God's grace will forgive you. Well, beloved, it does matter what we do. God, again, has called us to a life of holiness. Does God forgive every sin? Does he bring back every one of us who are repentant? Yes, and the grace of God sustains us. But the grace of God is never an excuse to sin. So Jude says here that they perverted, they twisted, they distorted, they use it for something entirely different than what God had intended for it. And after 4,000 years of God's revelation to us, and Jude will certainly get into this as we move forward, God has not suddenly changed his mind about sexual ethics. What he said from the beginning is what he still says today. It has not changed. It has not been twisted. It has not been perverted. The way you pervert the grace of God is that you unhinge God's grace from the death of Christ. And when you unhinge God's grace from the death of Christ, you unhinge it from justice, you unhinge it from truth, you, you act as if God is a mere sentimental, tolerating pushover whose job is simply is to say, you know what, everybody is fine no matter what you choose. Now, we know the world does that, and we're not surprised at all by that. But what's sinister is when it happens inside the church. And do we not see that happening? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a seminal verse for me, 
when he says, what business is it of mine to judge the world? God will judge the world. He goes on to say, it's, it's what's going on in the church that matters. You see, that's where the greatest danger lies. It's inside. And when God's grace is explained without the backdrop of God's righteousness and justice and holiness, then God's grace is simply perverted. And if God did not condemn sin, then why in the world did Jesus die? There are those who twist it and distort it. Churches will either become echo chambers of the culture or we will continue to stand forth as, if you will, the conscience of the community. An echo chamber simply reverberates, simply repeats what the world is saying. And who out there is going to argue with that? But the church is to sound an entirely different voice. So we are to beware of those who are twisting and perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Therefore, anything goes because God will forgive. That's his business, they say. And secondly, beware of those who deny Christ and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. For those who even say sometimes in the church, Jesus was a really, really good example. He was a nice person. He was a good teacher who healed people and fed hungry stomachs. What's missing in that? Just about everything. Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of the universe, and, and this is his world, and, and he will have his kingdom, and he will have his sway, and beware of those who deny the authority of Jesus Christ so that they can make up their own rules and give permission to live any way that they want. The enemies of God and the enemies of his church will not win. Because Jude goes on to say, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Their judgment was predicted long ago. It's interesting, Jude says this condemnation, but there's no antecedent before. There was nothing he said about this judgment before, but there will be certainly a lot that he will say after. It's interesting, if you were to go to Second Peter, you would find that Jude seems to be quoting Peter, or Peter seems to be quoting Jude. I just like that. Uh, they both talked about this condemnation that was to be upon them from long ago. Because Jude and Peter are saying the same thing. They, there have always been people who have been the enemies of God and his word. And their condemnation is sure. So here's the pattern. And the pattern is, is rather simple. Ignore the parts of the Bible that address what matters. Ignore the parts of the Bible that teach God's sound truth and doctrine and then reinterpret them and explain them away as if they have no relevance for us. And then embrace views that sound so sophisticated that may appear in the New York Times that sound so elitist that give, that give an excuse for people to do whatever they want to do. But contending for the faith is what we must do.
And contending for the faith, beloved, means not being contentious. There are, there are people who contend for the faith, but boy, they, they badger and they're obnoxious. And when they fight, it's really nasty. We are to stand up and fight, but we must always fight how? In love. Preach the truth of God, share the truth of God, contend for the faith in truth, but with love. We are to do it humbly. We are to do it lovingly. We are called to do it. So just a couple of thoughts as we close. First, do you know the faith? Do you know what it is that you are to contend for? Do you know what it is that you are to defend? And we quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 15 a moment ago, those first three verses. So when you gather in your groups or maybe you just pull out the abide and for yourself, you take some notes and you fill in. What is absolutely essential to the faith? What would you put there? Our church identifies nine such articles of faith that we say are absolutely essential that all Christians everywhere and especially those who are part of our church conform to. Those things that save us, those truths that we have received as, as the gospel by which we are saved. The gospel is about Jesus. It's about his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. The gospel centers on the cross and the empty tomb. The gospel centers on the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back. And all of that is revealed to us in God's word, which has absolute authority over us. Do you know the faith and what it is that you are to contend for? Secondly, do you delight in it? Do you love it? Do you rejoice in it? What we talk about, certainly what our actions are, will, will communicate what we're excited about. And the gospel is something not only to be believed, but also delighted in. So make sure in your own life, in your own practice, you delight in the gospel. And then finally, are you living in conformity to it? And the choices that you make, and the lifestyle that you live out, and the way that you conduct your life at work or in the world, the way you do your taxes, the way you speak, and all that you do, are you living in conformity to it? The reason why I said at the beginning that Jude verses 3 and 4 may be more relevant today than at any point in our lifetime is it feels to me as if at times, and it's more than just a feeling, that we've sort of jettisoned so many things that God calls us to. And it is a call to holiness. It is a call to be conformed to Christ in every single thing we do. Are you living in consistency and in conformity to the gospel of Jesus Christ? The grace of God does not call us to a life of sensuality. The grace of God calls us to a life 
of godliness. Do we fall short? Yes. Every single day of my life, I fall short. But let's never minimize what he calls us to. Do you hear me, church? I don't know if my concern for this is being conveyed to you as I, as I would hope. And the one thing is I do not want to sound like a, a, a raving, badgering preacher up here today. But I do want to sound like somebody who is conveying the apostolic message of Jesus Christ. That he calls us to something different. He calls us to love Jesus and to obey him in every sphere of our lives. So let's contend for the faith by sticking up for what we believe and by living it out. Let's bow in prayer. And our Holy Father, how grateful we are for the truth, for the faith, once and for all delivered. It cannot be changed, it cannot be altered, it, it cannot be adjusted, Father, to fit with the times. It is, it is once and for all complete. Father, I would pray that you would always help us to identify those things that, that matter most, those things that are befitting of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for which we would say, here are the essentials upon which I will stand and I will not move. You cannot cause me to budge from it. I will stand here with humility and, and love, but I will not move. And then, Father, for the reality of the faith, for all of those truths that we affirm then to be fleshed out in life. That every single day of my life, I will, I will seek to live my life in conformity and consistency and in the reality of these truths as lived out by Christ. So really, Father, in the end, it's, it's very simple for us. We are, we are to believe what Jesus has given us, and we are to live like Jesus lived. Knowing, Father, that at the heart of all of it, the only reason why we can do this is because the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ has come, and the unacceptable ones, that's all of us, the unloving ones, the ones who are filled with darkness, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, all of that darkness was taken away. And the stain that seemed to be so deep and so set has been gone, is gone. It's been removed by the blood of Christ. And now, Father, out of that reality, help us, enable us, empower us by your Spirit every single day to live for you to love you to worship you to obey you this is our prayer in Jesus name we ask and all God's people said amen let me invite you to stand